Good morning, everybody. Nice to be with you preaching. Um, today we're in the Word and we're teaching about the Word. So I'm going to, um, I'd like to give a, a presentation on the Word of God. And um, I got some large paper out recently and, and I spent a couple of hours just mapping out all my thoughts and where you know, these little quotes that came to mind and all these expressions and by the end of it I just ended up with two sheets, massive amount of detail and uh, I thought, wow, this is this is a real journey and it's uh, really exciting. And um, that's, what I, that's what I want for you. I want you to see how rich and exciting God's Word is and today I was rostered on to be teaching with JJ so the kids are in today as well so hopefully for you you young guys as well it, it'll be it'll be a good journey and uh, we've got a we've got a fair bit to cover uh, so so bear with me um, uh, the slide next just um, I wanted just to explain why I chose this subject um, at work recently a friend Christian guy he said um, I can't quite remember the context but he he said, oh, I, I haven't read the Old Testament. I haven't read anything from the Old Testament for years. And I, I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. I don't know what church he's at or what sort of teaching they do, but it sat with me as, as something that was a bit interesting. I'd, I'd like to write to him about that and offer him some encouragement. And also, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and um, I found that my life has been anchored in God's Word. The more I uh, learn of him the more I'm sure of his word and uh, so that gives me confidence and when you think and reflect on the life of Jesus Christ too he used the scriptures a lot didn't he many quotes and um, and I figured if it's good enough for Jesus it's good enough for me and certainly for you um, and the other thing I reflect on is the growing secularism of our society um, you, you would see that, you, you, you know about it, and uh, God, God and his word is being pressed down. And I, and I think as Christians we have a great op opportunity and in fact an obligation to, to raise that and keep, keep God at the forefront. Billy Graham recently was quoted as saying, if ever there was a time needed for God and his word, it's now. And you see the mess around the world and in particular that country where he lives. So with that as introduction, uh, let's just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for today and for the opportunity to share together and learn and be encouraged by your great word, the wonder of your word. And my prayer today is that we do feel that sense of its aliveness and how it can guide us and impact us and um, at the end of this talk, there is a challenge, and uh, we just pray for our hearts to be open to what you would have us do, and pray for wisdom for me as I lead this discussion and talk, and pray that you will be glorified uh, as you deserve, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, um, in my usual enigmatic way, I'm using lots of visual presentations today. So if you wanted to sit 
towards the front, you can, or the young people, you, you're more than welcome. Uh, just a couple of introductory slides sort of unpack uh, the structure of the Bible. And, and when you see it diagrammatically, it's actually with some intrigue. And um, that, that particular slide there, you can see all, all of how the Bible is put together in a particular structure. Uh, the book of Genesis and what we have is called the law. In, in, if you're a Hebrew, it would be called the Torah or the Tanakh. And we have the history books and the poetry books, gen, um, um, the Psalms and Song of Solomon and so on. And then we have the prophets. So in one little snapshot, you can see how the Old Testament is put together. And uh, then moving in between the gap between the Old and the New, moving into the Gospels, the history book, which is the book of what? Book of Acts. Okay. And then Paul's letters. Paul was one of the major authors, obviously, of our scriptures. Various other letters from writers like Peter and Titus and so on. And the last book, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. So that's the structure of the book. And in terms of authorship, we see on this next slide... Um, this interesting little diagram I found Moses being uh, the most prolific of the writers uh, being responsible primarily for um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 125,000 words uh, followed by Ezra, Luke, Jeremiah and Paul so you can, it, what I'm hoping to do is just not make this a technical talk because we will move into something a little bit serious soon, but just to give give you a little overview as to what um, uh, how how the Bible is structured. The Bible on this slide next one is can be described as uh, in fact multiple books in one uh, because if you think of the the way the Bible was written, it was written over many years, two thousand years in fact. Some say between fifteen hundred and two thousand years, with over forty authors, and I, and I like to use these expressions because they modernise our defence of the Bible. The Bible authenticates itself by writing history in advance. So be encouraged by these little, these little words that I'm using, and we can often refer to it as being an integrated system or an integrated message, and. Uh, Younger people here, or in fact everyone should know on this next slide, um, what's that picture on the left, where's that from? Yeah. And so what, what, what is that image? Can you, yeah, so it's, it's a hologram and then on the right hand side there's new technology to, to show us what, how we might be able to use holograms in using our modern devices. But what a hologram is a 3D image, isn't it? It's like a live, real, moving image. And you might be wondering why I'm bothering you with this unusual fact. If I take a hologram and I uh, remove some of the uh, image from that hologram, the, the entire image still stays intact. It's not like on this cat, if I, there's no way I can just remove the tail of that cat. If I take a bit of the image out, the, the whole cat starts to reduce in clarity. And so the Bible is in fact like a hologram. There's no one page on marriage. There's no one page on salvation or righteousness, is there? There's no one page on how we govern our church. 
So if you think about it, if I uh, was, dare I say, to take tear a page out of the Bible, the entire message, the clarity might be reduced a fraction, but the overall message is still intact. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, I'm, so that's a good example of how God has delivered his message over these thousands of years uh, because that way the whole integ- integral message is, is contained. Um, the Bible uses um, all sorts of literary devices and I've just thrown some samples up there. In fact, Sue, we were chatting, you were chatting to um, Isabel who's studying English and history about the use of literary devices, illusion, idioms, hyperbole, paradoxes, metaphor. The Apostle Paul drops into sarcasm and various other things and you hear funny (laughs) verses like when Elijah is is talking to the prophets and the the prophets of Baal are trying to get their fire on and he's almost comical. Hey, maybe your God is away on a holiday or maybe he's in the bathroom. So we have these very unusual speeches and I think this is important for us to understand also because when we come to read God's word we need to know that at various times different languages are being used and so it's not all one consistent language and that's helpful for us just to be mindful of these uh, things. I want to share with you some uh, famous quotes and uh, if you're thanks, Les. If you if you know your pictures, I'm going to ask um, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Zed and Abel on on the on the next slide. So get ready, guys, for for who these three. But these first three, who who would be the first one? Any thoughts on that? Sir Isaac Newton, so great mathematician. He says we account the scriptures of God to be most sublime. Philosophy, I find more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in any profane history whatsoever. Victor Hugo is the next character, the great French writer. England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. Great quotes. I work for uh, Wesley Mission, and that third character is John Wesley, uh, the famous um, preacher who founded the Methodist Church. And he writes in a very modern way, in a very cryptic way. He says, this book had to be written by one of three people, good men, bad men, or God. It couldn't have been written by good men because they said it was inspired by the revelation of God. Good men don't lie and deceive. It couldn't have been written by bad men because bad men would not write something that would condemn themselves. It leaves only one conclusion. It was given by divine inspiration of God. And even if you look at the um, well-documented history of the American nation on this slide. So guys, who have we got there? George Washington, yep. Abe Lincoln and a modern Ronald Reagan. The very first president of the United States of America, George Washington, said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. And Abraham Lincoln says, I am busily engaged in the study of the Bible. I believe it is God's word because it finds me where I am. He said that to a skeptic or an atheist who was challenging him when he saw him reading his Bible. Ronald Reagan says, of the many influences that have shaped the United States into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. 
Very interesting, isn't it, that the nation was formed that way compared to what we see of that nation today. And my last set of quotes come from, I don't know if you'll get these, but uh, uh, Paul, D.L. Moody, that's right, and the next character, Spurgeon, yeah, and the third one, any guesses here? Non-Christian, Voltaire. Moody says, the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. And Spurgeon, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. (laughs) That's great, isn't it? Voltaire said that within a hundred years of his time, Christianity would be swept away from from existence and pass into obscurity of history. He hated God. And yet 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used his house and printing press to produce a stack of Bibles. So what themes spring to mind when you uh, think about the Bible? What, what are the words that jump out? Can you give me some words? What, what do you think when you think of God's word? Stability, yep. Yeah. Salvation, yeah. Truth. Consistent, yeah. Sorry. Love, that's right. A plan. Sorry. Everlasting, yeah. There's lots of words, aren't there, when you think of it. Uh, How I tried to condense it, because it's very hard to take all of those books and one huge message. But this next little slide, um, if you had a pen and I was handing out notes, you would be filling this in. But what I just thought of three easy ways to, to remember this. What, what do you think some of the R words might be? Mankind can be... Sorry? Redeemed, yes, or, yep, or righteous. Mm-hmm. Reunited is another... Regenerated, you can put in quite a few, can't you? And and in relationship with God. So we're redeemed, we're made righteous, and we're back in relationship with God. But how? Through who? Through Jesus Christ. So that becomes the grand narrative if you sort of look at all of Scripture and and try and make Christ the focus. So uh, Jesus himself does this. He authenticates the scriptures and um, I I particularly love this one Um, I may have preached on this verse before I just feel I have but it doesn't really matter (laughs) it's such a great one beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself so you know if Jesus is saying uh, look all these scriptures about me uh, then we should be very encouraged by by this. In the next example, he in another setting, uh, he is uh, in the synagogue and he's uh, perhaps um, just... No, maybe we don't have the picture there. It says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they, meaning the scriptures, which testify of me. So 
And my little picture is really cool because the people learning are sitting around Jesus' feet, but the Pharisees in the background all angry. <laughs> and then uh, um, the next slide, again in, an, in another setting, still in the synagogue but a different scene. Um, the context here is that Jesus has come to Nazareth um, where he had been brought up and, and the custom, the text says, and as his was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read and was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And as the slide says, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all were on, on him in the synagogue. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine the response? How dare he? How, what audacity? Um, it's very interesting though when you look at these verses uh, from Isaiah and the next slide sh shows that um, Jesus in fact stopped at a comma. He didn't continue reading that verse in Isaiah. To proclaim the liberty of the captives, to open opening of the prison of those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord. That's where he stopped. And the day of vengeance of our God. So for 2,000 years we've had a break in the sentence. And uh, we see through the book of Revelation how Christ will indeed return uh, in might and in power. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. I am. And... Um, Speaking of I am, this slide, Jesus claims the title used by God in the voice of the burning bush. Uh, this greatly offended um, the Pharisees uh, because this title, I am, uh, was extremely venerated. And um, here is another example where Jesus has boldly claimed this title. You'll recall when Moses saw the burning bush, and God spoke through the burning bush. And Moses said, well, who will I say sent me? And God said, I am has sent you. Uh, so it's very, very provocative for someone to suddenly claim, I am, I am. But he did. Slide, thanks, Les. Even the Pharisees authenticate the deity of Christ. They yell, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can for forgive sins but God alone? So even his protagonists uh, deify uh, who Jesus is. Why was Jesus hated so much? Because of the claims he made, the miracles that he did. He was a threat to their religious system. He was a threat to their way of life. The people with whom he socialised, prostitutes and tax collectors, and the lack of respect he had for their man-based traditions. No wonder he was despised by that group of individuals. So why should we take the Bible seriously? Uh, 
I love this verse, Acts 17 and 11. It's a, it's, it's an absolute favourite of mine. Um, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded, or we might say open-minded, uh, than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether those things were true. So the little guy in the, in this picture says, well, it says to me, uh, well, don't trust the preacher. Make sure what he's saying is right. What, the, does, what does the text say? And what when you hear things, what like from me or Ben or anyone, what does that? What does God's word say? So we always anchor and come back to God's word. So you might hear the expression to be to be a Berean or a Berean Christian. It's just it's really about being diligent. Another example is um, taking the Bible seriously, um, because we see here in Jude and Timothy these great verses. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, uh, that's an interesting word in itself, isn't it? It's common for all. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly. Contend means what? Strive or to wrestle with, hence the boxing glove picture, for the faith which was once for all delivered. There's another interesting point. It was once for all delivered. It didn't come via the Quran or the Book of Mormon and various other iterations. It was once delivered to the saints. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What does that tell you? What does that t speak of? Yeah, and st and studying. and 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 yes, that's right. And if we find that hard, we have strength also in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we're charged with being contenders for the faith, rightly dividing the word of God, being diligent about that, and yet Christ is beside us helping us to do that. Another little verse that pops out is this one from Acts and uh, R.C. Sproul, a great preacher, uh, there's a quote there, but the verse is, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Um, yeah, I think this, is, this goes to the, to the heart of how and why Calvary Chapel has based its teaching style on, on an expositional way. We teach book by book, verse by verse, in order that we preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, there's no point getting to an uncomfortable or an awkward section in the Bible and just parking that. That's a bit embarrassing or that's we don't want to confront that issue. We just won't preach on it. David says of God in Psalm 138.2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. So the psalmist is elevating the word of God up to this high level. I want to um, just work through these next few slides quickly because there's, 
a number of characteristics about uh, the scriptures that, that are really important and I think this will help us with more understanding. The first is uh, the, the very fact that it is inspired of God. Uh, if we don't accept the inspiration of God, then it's really just a man-based uh, Bible. And um, in 2 Peter we read, Knowing this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men spoke as if they were, as if, sorry, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So it's God's very spirit directing man. And the, a verse I didn't quote here, but I, I now wish I had, was in one section of the scripture, it actually says that the person didn't know what they were writing. So they were still writing inspired by God, but they didn't know what they were writing. And I thought that was interesting. I had a friend at a previous church, uh, he and I debating some theology, and he said, oh, Andrew, you're not very mature. Uh, and because you're not very mature, I can't share this new truth with you. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I, I've had this revelation uh, about what the subject was. I said, well, the Bible says there's no private interpretation or revelation. Uh, hey, I'm still waiting to hear what that piece of revelation is. The second point is under this seven unique characteristics is the formation itself of the Bible, the, the actual uh, f format. Um, in, in two ways I'll describe this. One is how diverse it is because if you think of the Bible as um, it's not a history book and yet it's very historical. It's not, a, it's not a science book and yet it is full of uh, scientific insights uh, and it's not just a book about facts and yet it is deeply factual uh, and accurate. In terms of its uniqueness, it's the first in its preeminence because of its way to uh, highlighting the deity of Christ. It is the best book. As David said of the sword of Goliath, there is none like it. And it is the oldest book if you consider that it was first authored in the heart of God before eternity started. The third area is in this um, unique characteristic about preservation. And in fact, um, some commentators will even call it the doctrine of preservation. Um, who can tell me what that, that picture represents? Yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So um, we know through history the, the Bible has been hated and, and rejected of a man burned and and so on uh, and yet the psalmist says the words of the Lord are pure as silver tried in a furnace of, of earth purified seven times thou shalt keep them O Lord thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever what will he preserve the words the very words not just the word the all the words are preserved. And wonderfully, in 1947-1948, as a way of example of this preservation, in the tomb, uh, not the tomb, the, the caves in Qumran in the southern area 
of Israel, this wonderful discovery occurred. Uh, hundreds and thousands of scrolls, um, you know, that go back 300 BC. And, in, and the, the example of the Isaiah scroll was so pristine, uh, it mirrored virtually exactly what we have today in our English translation of the Hebrew. And so praise God that he is faithful. He said he would preserve his words, and he did. Uh, Pat will recognise a picture on this next slide, down the bottom, that little fire pot. And we broke it, by the way, and Paul's going to repair it with his great pottery, pottery skills. But the design of God's word, we know that it's like a sword being able to cut through, a hammer to break the resistant heart, a mirror to reflect the true picture of us, a fire to pure and refine. And that wonderful verse from Psalm, a lamp unto my feet, a guide. So um, we see uh, the unique design. And... Um, I'm borrowing from one of my favourite commentators on the next slide. We see this uh, very unique way of the meaning of the words of the names of the genealogy from Adam to Noah. So in that strict order, that sentence becomes man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. So I don't know how the Hebrew writers would concoct the gospel message in that way. I think that's pretty cool. And the next slide, it's just a, another little encapsulation. Um, Genesis being the creation through to Revelation consummation. And one of these great quotes which I've often shared with people here and elsewhere, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So young people, that's a great way to look at the scripture. Here is the Old Testament with a hidden message, which is the New Testament. We get to the New Testament and we see the Old Testament explained all in the New Testament. Uh, back to Spurgeon, he, he, he said, um, someone asked him, uh, if he was prepared to defend the word of God and he, he replied, defend it, I would as soon try to defend a lion. God's word doesn't need defending, just preach it. Let it out of its cage and it will defend itself. I love that. So we're doing a bit of that today, aren't we? Just just preaching it. So the next one is the, the preeminence of um, Jesus Christ. This is really important subject and uh, I won't read them all out but I have here 66 examples of all through every book the key theme of Jesus Christ so for example in Genesis he is the seed of the woman so a very unusual title it's the very first messianic title of Jesus Christ the seed of the woman that by itself biologically is very strange because we normally talk about the seed of the man, the lineage from the man. So that hints at the virgin birth. Uh, in Exodus, he is the Passover. 
or the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest and he is the rock. In Judges, he is the sword of Gideon. And we go through and through and through the scripture and we see all these wonderful uh, examples. And in the New Testament, um, we just um, we can see uh, how Jesus Christ is presented differently here again. Matthew, the king of king of the Jews, because Matthew was a uh, a Hebrew, and he his audience were the Jews, and so uh, he Jesus here is presented in his kingly uh, role. Mark was a Gentile, uh, and so the status of the Gentile here was was a servant, and the narrative is all around Jesus and his servanthood. Luke was a doctor, so we see his humanity expressed, and Jesus presented as the Son of Man. And John was the mystic, or he was mystical, and he presents Jesus Christ as the eternal God, and in Acts the ascended Lord, and so on. And Romans I could go through, but it's just, I had to stop. I was so excited in my study. Now, I like this next little bit because we get into models. Gee, I'm disappointed that text says click on the icon to... Has that been popping up all this time while I've been... Great, thanks. <laughs> Who can describe what that picture on the left is? What, what is that? A model? But what, what does a model mean? Yeah, it could be. Maybe a Chrysler or charger or something. But what what does what does it mean though? What what what's its purpose or what's it doing? What about uh Tim and Luke? What do you think, guys? What does a model do? That car model. Yeah. What's its purpose or Yeah, it's what's that? Yes, it's an image or a, a smaller version. Now, who can tell me what the statue on the right is? It is a statue and it's on the right. <laughs> what is that statue? Any guesses? So, it's the original Statue of Liberty. It's the original Statue of Liberty. It's a black woman representing freedom and so on and so the that concept was then given to the American when the American nation started uh, they were a little concerned about having a black uh, image there so it changed a little bit in the translation but that's the original Statue of Liberty. So the purpose of me saying this is because in the Bible we have many models and types and examples and I want to share a couple of them because they're just so rich. And this helps authenticate Scripture and it helps reinforce the centrality of Jesus Christ. So remember we before we talked about the design, if there's one overall narrative about Christ and his redeeming work, then these images and models and types reinforce that. And so the first one, and you know all these stories, I'm just condensing them for you. Abraham and Isaac. There was a episode here where the sacrifice was to be made 
was a sacrifice of obedience. The, there was an obedient son, even unto death. Son would be bound, slain on a hill, slain with a knife or a sword, and ultimately the lamb w- was slain. If you look in the King James Version, this is the verse. Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. I think that's very clever pun and uh, not, not, by, um, um, not by coincidence. How interesting then when geologists look at the location of that mountain and they can assign it to the location outside of Jerusalem today. Mount Moriah. Amazing. The second example is the brazen serpent. And we might have studied this in um, JJ's kids, can you remember? So Moses, the people were being bitten by venomous snakes and God instructed Moses to put the brass serpent up. Um, The serpent is an idiom of sin and brass is an idiom or a type of judgment. And the instruction was that people only had to look to the brass serpent to be saved. And the text says many chose not to and died. People who rejected the very mechanism for the cure uh, died. And Jesus said, just as Moses raised the brass serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up. And we recall those verses Corinthians, for he hath made him to be sin for us. Remember the serpent was sin, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And also, if you think of this model type, where were the people, uh, where were the Israelites at this time? Yeah, they were just out wandering, weren't they? And where were they destined to go? That's right. So can you think about how that translates to us coming to God. We are outside wandering and God has promised for us, doesn't he? So again, all these rich uh, idioms. The next one is Jonah and the whale. Uh, For the young people, one of the greatest and most intriguing stories in the Bible. Jonah was on a mission to preach repentance, as was Christ. He was in the belly of the great fish for three days and after he delivered his message, many people were saved. In fact, that whole town. People scoff at this story. But there was an episode some years ago where a man was found in a fish and he had been there for 48 hours. Two days. And they scoff at this story being three days. That man was alive, by the way. Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so too the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Great story, isn't it? Great idiom. The next one is the Passover lamb, probably one of the richest narratives and the richest idioms or types. The Passover was celebrated uh, when God provided freedom from the people's captivity. So again, it's like us. The firstborn lamb was to be sacrificed. The lamb was to be spotless. 
no bones were to be broken, the blood sprinkled around the door in the shape of a cross. And in 1 Peter 2.22 we read, He who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And in Matthew, Jesus himself says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the very blood being forgiven uh, for the forgiveness of sins. I want to just share one of my favourites, and that is from the book of Ruth. Because, it's a, again, it's a very uh, wonderful uh, little piece. And if you just forgive me, I'll, I'm, I've just got this little quick page to read, but you'll enjoy it. This tiny four-chapter romance has been venerated in college classes for its elegance as literature, but it also reveals the craftsmanship of prophetic anticipation unrivaled anywhere in Scripture. The story involves a hero, Boaz, who is in the role of a goel, or a kinsman redeemer, whose ultimate commitment of redemption returns the land in Bethlehem to its former owner, Naomi, and who also takes a Gentile bride, Ruth. To follow the plot, one must understand the law of redemption. In ancient Israel, land wasn't sold as we are used to. Since God was the real landowner, Israel was simply a tenant under conditions of obedience. When the land was sold, quote, what the buyer received was only the use of the land, not the title. There were conditions under which a kinsman of the seller could redeem the land back to the original family and these conditions were typically noted on the outside of a scroll defining the transaction. The scroll in Revelation 5 was written on the, outs on the inside and the outside which defines it as a deed subject to redemption. A kinsman of Adam in his role as Goel, a kinsman redeemer, is taking possession of what he has already purchased with his blood as the sacrificial lamb. He not only purchased the land, he also purchased a bride. In the book of Ruth, Naomi is, the, is in the role of Israel, exiled from her land. Boaz is her kinsman who performs the redemption of the land and Ruth, a Gentile, is also purchased for a wife. This macro code extends to virtually every detail of the book. It is interesting that Ruth is introduced to Boaz through an unnamed servant functioning as the Holy Spirit. The church, as the Gentile bride of Christ, is introduced to the ultimate kinsman redeemer by the Holy Spirit also. And it's also interesting that Ruth learns how to deal with this situation from Naomi. We learn of God's plan of redemption through his dealings with Israel. It is also provocative that in the story, Naomi, Israel, learns of Boaz, Christ, through Ruth, the church. So there's a little ministry there. That's why Ben's over in... But isn't that wonderful, that little narrative, that little story? We're pretty close to finishing. These um, seven wonderful little promises here um, 
I like getting the pictures. They, they just give me joy when I'm preparing. But uh, we see the promises of salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, the promises of heaven, the promise of Jesus coming again. The word of God is all about hope in a hopeless world. So young people or old people, these wonderful promises still last. So in summary, the grand narrative of the Bible is the redemption of man through Christ. But I just want to ask, how did that actually happen? How did we, uh, how did we find this redemption? Um, and I want to close on this point because really um, I don't want a talk just to be about the Bible and say, well, that's all very interesting, but it has to really hit us hard, doesn't it, and really mean something. And uh, to do that, I just want to um, bring us back to the very core of the scripture, and that is um, you know, who Christ is, what he did, what was our place in that. Uh, borrowing a term from um, um, John Corson, sorry, he uses this term, the great switcheroo. And uh, who, who's that character on the stage there with Jesus Christ? Can some young person call the name out? Yep, who's the other one in chains? Barabbas, that's it. So we have a scene here with Jesus Christ and Barabbas. So in accordance with his pre-announced mandate in Isaiah, Jesus ministered for several years only to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He is then subjected to six illegal trials which climax with the sentence of execution. And then we encounter the big switch. Give us Barabbas. This is irony at its ultimate extreme. Here was one validly condemned under the law and the other declared innocent by the personal representative of the rule of the known world. Barabbas knew he had done nothing to merit going free while another took his place. Barabbas and Christ changed places. Christ was for him a true substitute. The murderer's bonds, curse, disgrace and mortal agony were transferred to the righteous Jesus, while the liberty, innocence, safety and well-being of the immaculate Nazarene became the lot of the murderer. Both mutually inherit each other's situation and possessions. The delinquent's guilt and cross become the lot of the just one and the civil rights and immunities of the latter become the property of the delinquent. The staggering reality is that you and I are presently in Barabbas' shoes. And as we stare in astonishment at that cross, what held Jesus to those grim timbers? It wasn't the nails. He was crucified on a cross of wood, yet he made the hill on which it stood. The creator of the universe could have said, at any time, enough's enough, I'm out of here. But it was his love for you and I uh, that held him there. Indeed, what a ultimate valentine. And so my last slide just helps us think about where we're at today. 
what are our choices if we have not come to a point in our lives of asking Christ to be our Lord and Saviour, then we need to, surely. Um, how serious have we been and are we in, in taking up our understanding and learning of his word? And so we're left today with these stark challenges. God's word is serious. What is your choice today? So I'll finish in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this um, presentation and we thank you for the encouragement that you give us about the authenticity of your word. We thank you for its wonder. Uh, we thank you for its design. We thank you for the centrality of Christ. We thank you for its wonderful promises. We thank you for the hope it gives us. There's so much there and you venerate your word. In fact, you say your word is lifted higher than your name. And we thank you for that. And today we just pray that as we think about this, that you will um, prick us to our heart and stir us on. Help us to be defenders of your word, earnestly contending, as that verse said. And we know as we do that, that you will give us wisdom and guidance. So, Lord, we thank you. We trust and pray that you have been glorified today. We continue to do that as we say we love you and we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.